Well, I asked and you responded. After our previous video on seven tips for reading the Bible, I asked if you guys wanted to see seven tips on reading individual books within the Bible, and a number of you in the comments said yes. So, had to break out another gi, throw it on. Let's do another edition of seven black belts Bible reading tips. Before we jump into that, those of you that do jujitsu or those of you that just like to work out, we have a new item for sale over in our online store. We have Disciple Dojo Rash Guards. Rash Guards are what you wear under your gi when you're training, at least people that don't want to get hairy, sweaty grossness all over their training partners do. But you can also just wear these as workout shirts as well. So if that's something you're interested in, you're looking for a way to help this ministry out and get a cool design, then head over to the store and check it out. We also have lots of other gear and apparel and Bible nerdy stuff and jujitsu nerdy stuff. So after you watch this video, head over there and see if there's anything you might be interested in. We would greatly appreciate it. Okay, so now that that's out of the way, here are my seven tips for reading the book of Genesis. Now, these are not exhaustive tips. You could spend years studying just the book of Genesis. But what I want to do, like we talked about in the last video, as a good jujitsu instructor would teach beginning students the basic movements and concepts and philosophies of jujitsu before throwing them onto the mat, literally. In this video, I just want to give you basic concepts, ideas, motifs, and things to be aware of when you set out to read the book of Genesis and to better understand it. So. Tip number one, you have to know why Genesis was written. Genesis was written to give God's people who at that time were coming out of Egypt after having been enslaved for longer than America's even been a country, God needed to instill an identity in these people. And there have been bits and pieces passed down, possibly written format, most likely orally, but Genesis was written as the beginning of the covenant with Israel. So God's newly freed people needed to know who was this God that they serve, what was their relationship to this God? And in turn, what did this God want of them? So as you're reading through Genesis, keep that in mind first and foremost, and be on the lookout for covenant imagery, symbolism, and motifs. There are a lot of things that you're going to see throughout the book of Genesis that aren't accidental or incidental. So pay attention to the descriptions of Eden and the imagery associated with it, because that's going to pop up later in the Torah as well as in the rest of the Bible. Note the priestly actions and things involving sacrifice, sacred space, altars, intercession, and in particular, note how often the concept of the land appears. The Hebrew word land sometimes gets translated as earth or world. So this is when it helps to look at multiple translations like we talked about in our previous video in this series. But see how the concept of land and exile from the land going to and from the land, in and out of the land. See how those themes repeat in Genesis, because it's really important. And it's going to set the stage for a lot of what happens in the subsequent 65 books of the Bible. Also, pay attention to the concept of fertility. And just today, I was sharing with our friend Carmen Imes about making this video, and I just asked her, hey, what would you want people to know about Genesis? And a number of the things that she listed were already included in what I was going to say, but she did call my attention to one concept that I had forgotten, and I want to make sure I include it, so shout out to Carmen. It's the concept of fertility in the ancient world and how crucial that was for the people's sense of identity, continuity, inheritance, lineage, 
everything was wrapped up in one's fertility, carrying on the family line. And in an ancient patriarchal culture, of course, the ultimate expression of that is in bearing a son to carry on the family name. So throughout Genesis, the promise God makes to his people is communicated in terms that they are very familiar with. And God enters into this world of the ancient Near East and he makes promises involving the seed, S-E-E-D, seed. It means offspring, descendants. It also means literal seed. Sometimes it even means semen. And in Genesis, it frequently has a number of those meanings interwoven together. So pay attention to that because that drives the action of the book and unifies the book as a whole. What's God doing with this seed promise that he's made to this particular line of descendants? And then lastly, pay attention to the concept of blessing or being blessed and the nations and where those two intersect. Because once again, that's going to play a major role in the whole rest of the Bible. These are the things Genesis was written to communicate. So you need to keep that in mind as you're reading the book, especially if you're reading it for the first time or really studying it in depth for the first time. It was written to God's covenant people to give them their identity and provide a springboard for the entire rest of the biblical story. This brings us to point number two. Don't read Genesis as something that it's not. In other words, if you're going to do all of the things that we just said in point number one, make sure while you're doing that, that you're not reading Genesis in a way that was completely unfamiliar to its original author and audience. Remember from our last video, we want to do exegesis, not eisegesis. So what I mean by that is don't read Genesis through the lens of modern concepts of astronomy or taxonomy or biology or anthropology or even metaphysical philosophy, because none of those would have had any bearing on the original reader. Instead, read Genesis for what it is, historiography from the ancient Near East of the second millennium BC. It's not modern history. It's not written with scientific precision. It doesn't use language the way we might expect from modern academic writing. It's ancient Near East literature, and it has the characteristics of ancient Near East literature. It's not exhaustive. In fact, if you look at the creation account, the things that are listed, delineated, and talked about are pretty much only those things that ancient Near East agrarian societies had everyday knowledge of, because that's who it was written to. The Table of Nations, for example, doesn't include every known people group in world history. You're not going to find anything in there about the Aborigines of Australia or the peoples of Central America. What you are going to find are all the peoples of the known ancient world being discussed and delineated in terms of Israel's relationship to them, because that's what was important for the original audience. And that's what's important for the biblical narrative. Things aren't always chronological. Sometimes you have what's called recapitulation. Now we have a Bible jargon video here in the dojo on that very daunting sounding term. But recapitulation is basically when you describe an event like big picture. And then in the next section, you jump back to a specific point or a specific part of that event and retell it in more detail. And that happens a number of times in Genesis. Biggest example is chapter one and then the recapitulation in chapter two which zooms in, so to speak, on the final day of creation. But you also see it later in the patriarchal accounts. In the story of Joseph, there's this dischronologized interjection of the account of Judah and Tamar, and it seems to interrupt the flow of the narrative. Well, that's intentional, and there's a reason for it, but it is doing exactly what it seems to do. It's interrupting the flow of the narrative. So the question you want to ask when you come to things like this is, why is that like that? Why is the author doing this? What's important about this section that it had to be placed there? And some critics might say, well, it's because an author clumsily wove 
wove together different sources. And But that's entirely hypothetical, and we really actually don't have any evidence whatsoever of that other than 19th and early 20th century European scholarly concepts of what ancient documents should be like. But in fact, we know documents from the second millennium weren't always like that. So think of it this way. Genesis is concerned with giving us the who and the why far more than it is with giving us the how and the when. The how and the when is what we find through study of the natural world, through reading the book of nature, as Psalm 19 would put it. But learning the who and the why, that's what scripture is inspired to give us. So just as you wouldn't look at a painting like the Mona Lisa and judge it by the standards of an anatomical illustration chart in a medical textbook, you wouldn't say Leonardo was being dishonest because he didn't show veins and skeletal system and label all of the different organs in the body of Mona Lisa. That's crazy. But yet, how many people do that with the Bible? They attack the Bible, or rather, they try to, in some weird way, defend that the Bible does give the details of biology, anthropology, physics, astronomy. So don't get bogged down in reading stuff into the Bible that's just not there. There's a whole internet full of people doing exactly that. We don't need to contribute to it. Instead, we want to see Genesis for what it is, and that brings us to point three. We have to understand the structure and the big picture of Genesis so we know what to expect as we're reading it. You can basically divide Genesis into two large sections. Section one is chapters one through 11, and that's the primordial preface. That is all of the events leading up to the arrival in Genesis chapter 12 of this one man named Abram whose family is going to span the rest of the book. So we've talked about this here on the Disciple Dojo podcast on the playlist, Genesis 1 through 11, the primordial preface. Those opening chapters are like the voiceover at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. If you saw the movie, the voiceover that gives the origin of the rings and then traces the journey of the ring from when it was created by the Dark Lord Sauron until when it was found by this little nobody named Bobo Baggins. And only after that long journey which spans millennia and the rise and fall of empires and these massive battles and, and just brief mentions of things and glimpses on screen of things that we don't even know necessarily what they are and events that we want to know all kinds of background information about, only after all of that then it gets to the opening title of the movie and the story itself for the most part begins so think of Genesis that way those early chapters of Genesis yeah we have all of these questions about creation days and this massive flood and this building that these people built and the scattering of nations and all of these questions because it's really fascinating stuff but just like with the Lord of the Rings opening the author is not concerned with parsing out all the details and the questions we have about those events because they're trying to get us, give us just enough background to get us what we need to be able to then appreciate and begin the story that starts in the next section of Genesis, which is the patriarch period. And that's Genesis 12 through 50. Then we zoom in, we go from a macro picture in Genesis 1 through 11, like a cosmic beginning and origin of everything. And then in Genesis 12, it kind of just zooms down into this one man's family. And the whole rest of the book is going to be about families in a localized setting for the most part. So knowing that, 
will help orient us as we're reading through the book and it'll give us an idea of what to expect. And there are these hinge sections that link the different accounts of Genesis together to make this big two section work. They're referred to as the Toledot sections. It's a Hebrew word. It sometimes just gets translated as origins or genealogy of or record of. It's rendered different ways in different translations. But those are the broad sections of Genesis arranged within the big picture overview of these two chunks, the preface and then the patriarchs. And the divide between the two brings us to our fourth point, which is Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 are everything. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 should be highlighted, circled, underlined in whatever way you can possibly delineate in your Bible that this is not just an important passage, but it is arguably the most important passage, not just in Genesis, but in all of Scripture. And the reason I say that, it sounds like I'm being hyperbolic, but I'm really not. In jiu-jitsu, there's a concept called shrimping. And shrimping is a very subtle, small, unnoticeable body movement where you basically move your hips from one position to another. I mean, in a nutshell, that's a super simplified version of what shrimping is. But every jiu-jitsu instructor who's worth their salt will tell beginning students, listen, shrimping is everything. If you can't shrimp, you can't do jiu-jitsu. And there are almost no situations where shrimping is not part of the correct solution to getting out of whatever position you're in. I teach my kids every week at Refuge Jiu-Jitsu, the king of the jungle may be the lion, but the king of the mats is the shrimp. Shrimping is foundational, but it's easily overlooked for the more glamorous or cool or exotic techniques. Well, Genesis 12, one through three is a lot like shrimping. It's everywhere. Everything in the Bible will somehow tie itself back to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The promise God makes to Abraham will guide the entire rest of the Bible, and it finds its fulfillment at the end in the book of Revelation. It's what biblical scholar Christopher Wright calls the mission of God. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 gives us God's entire mission. So I cannot emphasize enough how important that passage is for the entire rest of the Bible. It's what makes Genesis unique among all the other origin tales of all the people surrounding Israel, which brings us to point number five for interpreting Genesis. Understand the concept of polemical theology. Now we have a whole video series that we've done all this summer here at Disciple Dojo on how polemical theology is interwoven throughout the Old Testament. If you missed that series, check it out because it's absolutely everywhere. The writers of Genesis are not just trying to give their account of their origins and the history of God's people and God's inner workings with the world. They're doing so in a way that has cultural significance. They're taking cultural concepts, whether it's Mesopotamian concepts like Babylon or Assyria, Egyptian concepts, or Canaanite concepts. And they're adapting those ideas. They're speaking those languages. They're using these images and motifs that are very loaded in those cultures, but they're subverting them in numerous ways. They're using cultural concepts as a bridge to proclaim the biblical truth, what J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis called the true myth. So we have a whole video series here at Disciple Dojo that we did this year on that concept and numerous examples where it appears in the early books of the Bible. 
Go check that out after you watch this video if you want to know more about it. But it's really important to understand because it explains a lot of things that to us seem really odd or puzzling when we first come across them in the text. But if we know, for example, the background of Babylon and the claims of Babylonian Empire, then that really sheds light on why the Tower of Babylon story is found in the early chapters of Genesis, where it is and written in the way that it's written. I said Tower of Babylon, not Tower of Babel, because Babel is just the Hebrew word for Babylon. It's the same word. It's unfortunate that in English, those two got distinguished. And I want to give a plug. I mentioned my friend Carmen Imes earlier. She has a series of videos on her Torah Tuesday channel here on YouTube, where she goes into some of the fascinating background of the Babel account. So be sure if you're not already subscribed to Carmen's channel, you really need to be because she's putting out some incredible content. Genesis though is rooted in the ancient world and it communicates in ways that people in the ancient world could understand. Because unlike other myths of other religions around the world, Genesis goes out of its way to ground itself in the soil of the ancient Near East, in a specific time and place. These aren't events that take place off somewhere in the heavens or in a faraway land that's unnamed or on the heights of Mount Olympus or any other fable type approach. Genesis presents the events that it writes about as taking place in this world of history. So knowing some of that background of Israel's neighbors at the time Genesis was compiled will go a long way in helping us understand the meaning of the text. It was written to and about and for ancient people. And that brings us to point number six in how to interpret Genesis, which is understand that Genesis is descriptive, but not always prescriptive. Genesis is not hagiography or hagiography. How do you pronounce that? I've never, I've only seen that word written. It's not writing to lionize, to give larger than life heroes that are to be emulated and to look to for moral example. No, Genesis doesn't do that. Pretty much nothing in the Bible does that. The characters in Genesis were real people and they were real people in a fallen world. So that means that they were sinful people. Even the heroes of the faith throughout the Bible with very few exceptions, are not to be looked at as moral exemplars in all cases, and especially in Genesis. Genesis tells the story of the seed of Abraham. Abraham's family was somewhat dysfunctional. I mean, the incident with Hagar and Sarah, ew. It's no surprise then that the subsequent generations in the family are also highly dysfunctional. The entire nation of Israel comes from the man Israel. His name was Jacob before it got changed to Israel. Well, his family was a mess. Two wives, concubines, 13 kids. And among those kids, there was infighting, there was intrigue, there was jostling for position. It was, it was an ancient honor and shame culture. And you had four matrilineal lines of descent vying among one another. I mean, it's just, it is, it was not leave it to beaver and it doesn't present itself as such. God is the hero of Genesis. God and God alone is the hero of Genesis. But you do see movement. You do see character development. You do see change among people. I mean, Abraham, he has ups and downs in his experience with God. He has times of incredible faith. And then there are other times where you're like, Abraham, what are you doing? Isaac, 
shows blatant favoritism between his two twin boys that creates lifelong resentment. And the younger of those, Jacob, his name means scoundrel. And that's exactly what he is for the early part of his story. So when we come to the Bible with a Sunday school, fable, moral lesson mindset with all of the stories, we end up reading them as something that they fundamentally aren't, which is moral lessons to teach our children how to be good people. But that's not what the text of Genesis actually presents itself as. It's one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of Bible storybooks. They often have to transform the text into something that it's not in order to have a happy, G-rated story with an uplifting, easy-to-understand moral at the end of each story. And I just... Scripture doesn't give us that. Instead, Scripture gives us the account of a holy and a righteous and a loving creator God in his relationship with a fallen, rebellious, stubborn, disobedient, wayward people and what he intends to do to fix that. It's all about Yahweh and his chesed. If you don't know what that word is that I just used, check out the Superhero Seminary video where Professor Johnny Lawrence breaks it down for you and kind of berates you at the same time. But it's a fundamental and a crucial concept to understand when reading the Bible, God's chesed. And you see it played out over and over again in Genesis. And lastly, tip number seven for reading the book of Genesis use resources. We talked about in the first video in this series, get a translation you can read and understand and read through the book in that translation. And then when you come to passages that you have question about, read it in two or three other different translations to kind of get a feel for what's going on. But once you have the text itself, you still need background and you still need concepts and ideas and findings from the ancient world that shed light on some of the things you're reading. And no one person is going to just have all of that in their brain. So use resources. We review study Bibles here on the channel. If you're watching this, you probably already know that unless you just stumbled across us on YouTube through the algorithm and this is your first video. We have an entire playlist about study Bibles and their content and what you're gonna find. Let me just recommend a couple that I think are good for reading Genesis. These are not recommendations of these study Bibles overall as the best study Bibles out there. All study Bibles have their strengths and weaknesses, which is one of the things that we look at in our reviews here. But in terms of just understanding and being able to follow along and grasp what you're reading in Genesis, there are four that I recommend. At a very basic level, if you're brand new to Bible study, and you don't know anything about scholarship or ancient Near East archaeology, historiography, literary context, any of that kind of stuff. If you're like, okay, I'm just starting out, like I'm a super white belt when it comes to reading the Bible. I recommend getting a life application study Bible to read through Genesis. If you just read the book intro and then every time you read a chapter, read the application notes at the bottom of each page, you'll come away with a pretty good grasp of what the book of Genesis is about overall and why it matters. You'll have some good idea of the importance of this book, not just the history and not just the ancient setting, but also in our modern day world and how the messages of Genesis do apply to us today. So grab a life application study Bible if you don't already have one. It doesn't really matter what translation you go with. Read through the study notes as you read through the book of Genesis. That's incredibly helpful. That was how I was introduced to studying the book of Genesis way back in high school. In terms of background to Genesis, the 
Archaeological Study Bible by Zondervan and the Cultural Background Study Bible, also by Zondervan. Both of those do a tremendous job of giving you background that you probably wouldn't get in any other study Bible. Incorporating the latest and most informed biblical scholarship from the ancient Near East, highlighting areas of similarity and also difference between the biblical account and other ancient Near East accounts. These are the things you're gonna get in those two in particular. The Archaeological Study Bible, I believe as of right now, it's out of print. Zondervan, I really wish you'd change that. You need to bring this Bible back. It's fantastic. So you might have to look on eBay or some used bookstore to get a copy of that, but the Cultural Background Study Bible, it is still available, and I do recommend that. Then lastly, if you want to understand if you're a little bit more advanced in your study and you want to see how Genesis fits in with the rest of the Bible and the theological concepts of the book of Genesis, then I recommend the Biblical Theology Study Bible. Their notes on Genesis are really good. It's not light reading and it's not for new believers, but the notes on Genesis are really well done and the overview of the book as a whole is very helpful. So a good study Bible, and then you also need access to good commentaries. There are far too many commentaries on Genesis for me to go through. I'm looking at over a dozen on my shelf here, just of Genesis. So I'm gonna, again, take this back to white belt level. This is not for people who are scholars. These are recommendations for people that are brand new to studying the Bible and understanding it for themselves. I would recommend the commentary in the Understanding the Bible series by Hartley. It's accessible, it's easy to read, it's inexpensive, it's good. And then in the Bible Speaks Today series, there are two Two Genesis commentaries. One is on Genesis chapters 1 through 11, and that's by Atkinson. And then the second is on chapters 12 through 50, and that's by Joyce Baldwin. So those two together cover the whole book of Genesis. They're written at a popular level. You don't have to be a scholar, but both of those contributors are scholars. I recommend those. For those who are not white belts, maybe you are blue, purple, brown, even black belt in your biblical studies. I will just throw out two Genesis commentaries that I've found especially helpful. One is Vic Hamilton's two volumes in the New International Commentary on the Old Testament. I found it very helpful in teaching Genesis over probably about 20 years now. And the other is John Selhammer's The Pentateuch is Narrative. It's not a specific Genesis commentary, but it shows how Genesis ties in to the rest of the Pentateuch and brings out things that a lot of other commentators don't notice because they're just focusing on Genesis itself. Now, there are tons of great Genesis commentaries that I didn't mention, and we just don't have time for it in this video, but those are a handful that I wanted to highlight in particular for beginning students and also more advanced Bible readers. So those are my seven tips for anyone wanting to read and understand the book of Genesis. How about you? Do you have any tips for reading Genesis? If so, leave them in the comments section below. All right, that does it for this episode. Whether it's jujitsu or biblical studies, my advice is the same. Go train.